Uh, before we have our scripture, let me, I want to say it's good to see Sister Helen Kearney back with us. She's been out sick and has had some physical challenges as well, so it's good to see Helen back with us this morning. Our scripture, uh, again, is taken from the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, and we'll read verses 1 through 13. That's Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each person can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of, the, of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat, eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter, bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. There's a website entitled the Coming Home Network. It is, it is a Roman Catholic website, and it's devoted to testimonies of Protestant Christians who are converting over to Catholicism. It's part of the catchphrase that's been popular among Roman Catholics for a number of years, come on back home. And um, in any event, they have this website where people who were formerly Protestant, for whatever reason, convert over to Catholicism. And there was recently an article that was entitled, it was actually the first part, uh, the first of a two-parter but it was entitled, A Baptist Minister's Journey to the Eucharist. Now, the gist of the article is that the author, in his Protestant experience, held a particular view of the Lord's Supper. And that was, uh, 
his understanding was that the Lord's Supper was important, but he failed to see it really as a means of grace. By a means of grace, what we mean is that uh, by means of grace, we talk about those things that have been appointed by God through which he communicates his grace in Christ to his people. The preaching of the gospel is a means of grace because through that, God is communicating his grace in Christ specifically through that message. Christians in our fellowship are a means of grace because as Paul says, he has knitly joined us together with each joint supplying strength to the other as each one does its part. The sacraments are a means of grace because God again is at work through the administration both of baptism as well as the Lord's Supper. But in any event, this brother failed to understand the, the, the sacrament or the Lord's table as a means of grace. Now let me just kind of give you a, a, a summary of what his previous understanding of the supper was because it has everything to do with his present condition. As a matter of fact, he argues later in the article that what captured him about the Roman Catholic position was the magic of transubstantiation, where the, the, the means, the emblems, were somehow, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, they teach that through the ministry of the priests, as they pray over them, that the elements of bread and wine are transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. So that magic for him was a better understanding than, than he previously held concerning the supper. So let me just give you a summary of how he previously viewed the Lord's Supper. He says, the, the thinking of essentially every Christian that I knew was this. The Lord's Supper was a time for calling to mind what our Lord had suffered for us, giving thanks and recommitting our lives to Him. And by the sacred use of bread and wine, proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes again. Now, of course, we believe that Jesus was with us in the breaking of the bread, but not in any substantial sense different than what he is with us, the way he is with us at all times. Now, to make his point that the Lord's Supper itself had very little substance to it in terms of understanding the work of God, the continuing work of God towards believers, he went on to talk about how insignificant, eventually in some circles, that the supper had become. He, felt, he, said, he, he mentions how at various times you go to youth camps or different meetings and as a means of solidarity they would have the Lord's Supper and they would use whatever was available. In fact, he went on to talk about one place where uh, what was used to celebrate the supper was potato chips and Coca-Cola. Now, from this vantage point of this former Baptist, he was not able to see the supper as a means that God uses to nurture and strengthen believers. Instead, what he saw was really another form of human works. I mentioned earlier in our Sunday school class that, that what, what is called the memorial view of the supper, which is to say that the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper is for us to remember what Christ has done. What that does 
is nothing more than converted into a human work. In other words, the table is set before us. Now we have to do the work of remembering. It is now up to us to recommit ourselves and to give thanksgiving with the idea that by remembering and by, re, by recommitting ourselves that somehow we trigger God's grace on our behalf. Now as I consider the journey of this former Baptist into the camp of Catholicism, I pray that more Protestants would come to a firmer grasp of the Lord's Supper and a fuller recognition of the benefits that are conveyed in that supper. We mentioned this morning also, and I've mentioned it in other times, that I find, I don't think that it's by coincidence, that in what 50 years ago would have been considered oftentimes conservative Christian uh, churches, Bible-believing churches, there is a prominence of olive oil in so many of our Christian services. I think you have the increase the, the, the increase of olive oil for special anointings is in direct proportion to our neglect of what is actually conveyed in the Lord's Supper. I mentioned this morning, and I'll mention it again, that the degree to which we embrace the Lord's Supper and everything that He communicates and conveys in that supper is the degree to which we are able to say no to anyone trying to oil, put oil on our heads or convince us to come and get in a line or to unleash some kind of blessings from God. The degree to which we embrace what God has given us fully in the Lord's Supper is the degree to which we are not dependent on tricks, gimmicks, or any other trashy thing that we think conveys God's grace to us. What I want to do this morning is, is, is I want to begin by looking at a statement from John Calvin concerning the Lord's Supper, and then we want to ex- extract from the book of Exodus, and the reason for Exodus is because the Exodus passage is when the Passover is introduced, and what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus uses the Passover as the, as the, the vehicle through which he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. So really, the institution of the Supper is the end of the Passover because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Jesus himself is our Passover. Therefore, we understand that the Passover itself was always intended to point us to the greater reality which is set before us in the table this morning. Here's what Calvin says about the supper, and this is taken from the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says that now Christ is the only food of our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ, so that refreshed by partaking of Him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we shall have reached heavenly maturity. And it's with Calvin's words in view that I want to again turn to the institution of the Passover. And we really only want, only want to look at three things. Uh, even though we've read a great number of verses here, verses 1 through 13, and even have in mind verses 26 and 27, or 25 and 26, where, uh, Mo, where the, the Moses tells the, the leaders and the elders of the church, uh, of, of, the, the, of, of Israel, 
that when you come into the promised land and you continue to observe this in the presence of your children, he says, when your children ask you, what do you mean by this? then you should be able to explain it to them. So what I want to do is, again, since the Passover is the preamble to what is fulfilled by Christ, what I want to do is extract three particular truths um, as we look at our text, three, three things that God reinforces to us every time he feeds us from the table, three things that God reinforces uh, because the Lord's Supper is indeed a means by which God strengthens the faith of his people. One thing, the first thing is this that the Passover is a matter of divine action on behalf of humans. It is a divine action. The Passover is a divine action whereby God himself is executing judgment on sinners who deserve judgment and pardoning sinners who also deserve judgment. God is the one, God is the actor in the Passover. Whether it's in the Passover meal or whether it's in the Lord's Supper, God is the one acting. And therefore, He is acting as a judge, condemning uh, sinners and pardoning sinners at the same time. In verse, uh, in verse 11, it says, it is the Lord's Passover. The last line in verse 11, it is the Lord's Passover. And then in verse 12, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. But then look at verse 13. In verse 13, he says, um, yeah, in, in verse 13, he, he, he says, For the, the blood, or beginning in, yeah, in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, then I will pass over you. The Passover that we receive in Christ is the same thing. It is the perpetual announcement of God to us that we have been set free from the bondage of sin and there is now no condemnation and there is no charge that can be brought against us. Every time God brings us to the table, every time He shares with us of the table of the broken body and shed blood of our Savior, we are reminded that judgment has already been passed on us and judgment is surely to come on those who are outside of Christ. You see, there is an intention here. God is reminding us because sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget, A, that judgment is coming. And sometimes we forget that we've already been judged. Sometimes we forget that there is a comeuppance for all of those who are rebels and enemies against God. And sometimes we forget that we have been set free. And so God brings us to the table. And when he brings us to the table, it is an inherent exhortation that we ought to live like, like, like free people. You are set free. Jesus says, he who son, the Son sets free is free indeed. And so when we come to the table, we need to be reminded because God is reminding us. He's not saying that our, our childhood hasn't been traumatic and, and very difficult, but he's coming to tell us you're free from that. He's not telling us that our social and cultural experience has not been difficult, 
But he's coming, to, he's telling us, but you're free from that. He's not denying any of the uphill battles that we've had to fight. He's not denying any of the obstacles that we have overcome. But every time we come to the table, God is reminding us that we are free. The Apostle Paul tells the Galatian believers that he has been exhorting throughout his letter to understand the grace of God and how free God's grace is. But then he says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God knows where we are. He knows where we're headed when we leave this place. He knows what we are thinking, and here's his exhortation to those that he has set free. Whatever else you are, you say, yeah, but we're in the wilderness, but free. You're free. Yeah, you're in the desert, but you're free. And he wants, God, he wants us to live like free people. And just look at the, the, the perilous 40-year journey of the children of Israel in the wilderness. How much did they act like slaves? How much, how much of, of the, the years of bondage still, still clung to them in their thinking and in their mindset? And here's what God is saying. He comes, brings us to the table because we are prone more over and over to act out of our bondage. We can't get certain things out of our minds. We can't get certain experiences out of our minds. And so God invites us to the table and says, I've set you free. I've set you free. I know what your psychological scars are. I know what your history is, but you're free. Understand that you are free, and, and then here's what someone else will do. We will come to the table. In fact, we try to monitor ourselves, and that's not this. Listen, contemporary monitoring of ourselves is not the same thing that Paul exhorts the Corinthians to examine ourselves. You know how many Christians have not received at the Lord's table, even though the privilege has not been withheld from them formally by the church, because they, they said, well, my heart ain't right. Exactly, and it's not. That's why it's the Lord's Passover. Your heart is not in the right place. No, yes, you say, well, you don't know what I did. But he knows, and he has set you free. Brothers and sisters, any serving of the table that does not tell the recipients that they are free is not a proper serving of the table. What God wants us to know, he wants us to see the carcass of the, of the slain animal so that we would know as much as we see the carcass of the slain animal, he wants us to have the vision of, the, of, of, his, of his son's body on the cross so that we know we are truly free indeed. That is the flesh, that is the, the, the veil that was torn that gives us access to the Father. You are Free. And again, Paul's words in Galatians, don't let anyone, don't, don't become a, a subject again to the bond of slavery or do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Brothers and sisters, drink of the cup and eat of the table and don't let anybody get your forehead greasy. Eat and drink. And don't let anyone put any bondage on you of any journaling that you need to do or any journey you need to make or any quiet time. Eat and let the Father announce over you again. 
But there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no one that can bring any charge against you, so don't go picking up stuff that keeps you from enjoying the freedom that you have in Christ. Matter of fact, I love what the Lord does with the children of Israel the night that he sets them free. 400 years they had been in bondage. You talk about reparations. 400 years they had been in bondage. And what the Lord says, now you go to your Egyptian neighbors and ask them for a little gold. He didn't say demand it. He says, just go ask them. And they, I can imagine, no, just go ask them. Because when I set you free, it's not, a dog is not even going to bark. You go ask them and you will not be perceived as a threat. Because you're free. And what has freed you is not human legislation. What has freed you is the hand of Almighty God. It's the Lord's Passover. Because the Lord is the one at work in the Passover. And it is the Lord who is condemning the enemies. And it is the Lord who is pardoning sinners who deserve everything that the Egyptians got. But here's the second thing that we see. The Passover is not only a reminder of the divine action that frees us, and as well as the judgment that is to come, but the, the, the Passover is a communal meal. And perhaps that's something that this brother wasn't able to fully grasp. It's a communal meal. This, this is not... This is not just you doing your own thing. This is not, this is not you self-feeding. The Passover is a communal meal. In verse, look at, in verse 4. In verse 4 says, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of their persons, according to that which each one can eat, and shall make your count for the lamb. Then, of course, we see in verse 6, in verse 6, where the whole congregation were to slaughter the lamb at the exact same time. The effect of this was that of a single lamb. It was as if a single lamb was being slaughtered by a single person. Because there's a oneness there. So therefore, I think, and, and, and I think what, what, uh, what, what, what Paul is doing here, Paul is uh, Paul in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, what Paul is doing is reiterating the uni the communal aspect of our coming to the Lord's table. It's for this reason that Paul reasoning from the solidarity or from the unity or the community of the table, that he reasons from this, and it's for this reason that in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He said, well, that's his issue. He says, yeah, but he's part of the body. That's, that's her. That's, that's her issue. Yeah, but she's part of the body. And her leaven has an impact on the whole body. It's for this reason also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or chapter 10. In fact, I'll read specifically from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says this in verses 16 and 17. Uh, beginning in verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, 
We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. His rebuke later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 concerning the Lord's Supper is that when they come together, they're not really coming together as one body. They're not coming together as one body. Now, I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating, that we can't confuse uniformity with unity. And by that, on the surface, what it means is that just because we dress alike doesn't mean we're one. But I'll go even further than that. Just because we're in the same building doesn't mean we're one. And what Paul is saying is that he's reasoning from the solidarity of what God is creating in the supper. What God is doing in the supper is bringing us in all of our diverse parts. He is making us one. So he says that's why you're not just to be concerned about your own. Each family, each household take the lamb. But if you have a small household and you can't eat a whole lamb, then go to your neighbor. And you know the implication there is your neighbor doesn't have the right to say no. They don't have a right to say no. But then he goes on to say, and when you slaughter it, everyone's going to do it at the same time, meaning the same thing, looking for the same thing, trusting in the same thing. Therefore, when Paul rebukes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 concerning the Lord's Supper, he says, when you come together, it's not for good. And here's the reason it's not for good, because there's divisions. Most sacred thing that we can do. And Paul says, it's not for good because it is, there are divisions among you. Brothers and sisters, when God feeds us with the body and the blood of his son, He is reinforcing to us our union with Christ and our union one with another. And every thought and every action that is contrary to what God is reinforcing in the table is nothing less than an act of rebellion against the unity that God has ordained with the blood of his son. Paul says in Uh, At Mars Hill, he says, by one blood he has created all men, speaking of our commonality as the human race. But then he tells the Ephesian elders that by one blood he has purchased the church. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are one in humanity by virtue of creation, what God is doing in the supper is recreating a new humanity that is indeed one. What makes us one as humans is varied and, and it's across the board. And, and, and again, even unbelievers will be judged by God for their failure to love their neighbor as themselves. Paul's warning to the Corinthians is that when we do not see those that have been purchased by the blood of Christ as being one, then every time we come to the table, in fact, that's part of the rebuke that he gives when he says that it's not good, and then when he says examine yourself so that you rightly discern the body. And when he's saying, he's not talking about the elements, what is it to rightly discern the body and the blood of our Lord? It's how we look at those who have been purchased by that blood. 
and how we view those that he brings us into fellowship with that blood. So therefore, the, the Lord's Supper is a, not only is it a matter of divine action, where God is the one pardoning and God is the one judging, but God is also at work reinforcing that this is how he brings us together. Everything else, every other effort that we have, what we call fellowship, that's good and we should pursue those things. Call one another, meet together, find small groups, but here's what unites us. It's not our sewing circles. Here's what unites us. It's not, it's not what we do on our, in our small group time. No, here's what unites us. That what God has done is he has taken us in our individual places and placed us into the body of his son. He is building us up. Paul says to the Ephesians that he has removed the middle wall of partition and he has made us one. He has made us one, both Jew and Gentile, in Christ. He has brought us together. What God doesn't allow is for anything, inside or out, to ravage what he has purchased and the same thing that we say in our weddings, in our wedding vows. What God has joined together Let no man put asunder. This is a communal meal. We don't get to go to our our own rooms. I know we've, this is the nuclear family and and it's a newly defined nuclear family. And in many families, the only time we come together at the table is Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter. You'd be surprised. (laughs) The only time we sit down and eat together is when it's a special occasion. I, and some will remember the day when, you know, when it was dinner time. It wasn't dinner time for some. It was dinner time. And if you didn't, if you didn't eat at dinner time or have a reasonable excuse that was a permissible, then you just didn't eat. You didn't eat. When, when, when we were growing up, it was dinner time and we all had to sit down. Oh, I'm not hungry. I didn't ask if you were hungry. It's dinner time. Come to the table. I didn't ask about you. I told you dinner is served. Right? He said, oh, well, I'll take mine in my room. No, uh-uh, no, that's, that's not how it works. We don't eat in the rooms. Some didn't want to come to the table because they just had a fight with brother or sister across the table. And parents say, I don't care about that. You're going to eat and you're going to look at one another because this is one meal, this is one family, this is one house. God comes, calls us out of our closets. God calls us out of the comforts of our bedroom. God calls us away from our our own self-indulgences and he brings us to the table and he says, it's dinner time. And you say, but I'm not hungry. He says, but it's dinner time. You're not being hungry is your problem. You knew when dinner was served, right? And if you've ruined your appetite, that's your problem. But it's dinner time. And it's dinner time for the whole house. You know what we used to do? And you had to be a relative otherwise, or again, get permission. When it was dinner time, whoever else was at the house, they had to go. (laughs) 
And my mother would say, either you tell them or I will. <laughs> it's time to go. Because the family is coming together. And what God is demonstrating and what God is communicating is that you live in a wasteland, but you have a family. And that family has been purchased by the blood of Christ. Come and hear your heavenly Father speak to you. Come and eat, and eat with your brothers and your sisters. These, uh, my, my, my youngest sister, you know, she was 11 years younger than us, and, and we had, uh, my other sister was only two years younger than me. And so that means it was a nine-year gap. And so my sister, who was the, the, the previous baby, she had physical challenges. She had, you know, she was hard of hearing. She had two open heart surgeries before she was two years old. So she had all kinds of physical challenges which made her more of a baby. And so when my youngest sister was born and she would be crying, the other sister would tell my mother, your baby's crying. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, if that's, if that's all we can say, if that's all we can refer to another child of God is, is, Lord, your son is here, then he wants us to say that, but acknowledge it, because this is a community meal. And the only ones that are allowed to eat are those whose blood is covered, whose lives are covered by the blood on the door. And how dare we Think that anything that has been purchased by the blood of Christ is any less than what we are. Yes, it is a community meal, but there's third and final thing that I want to look at, and that is the Passover is not, a, not only a community meal, but the Passover is also a pilgrim's meal. It's a pilgrim's meal, and that's significant. The Lord doesn't want us to lose sight of that. Look at verses, uh, in, in, in verse uh, 11. The Lord reinforces this. He says, it is in, in, uh, in verse 11, he says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. And here's what he says, you shall eat it in haste. I think we need to be reminded that we are pilgrims and sometimes we get caught up in the, in the wears and tears of life and we act like we're whole. But even Jesus, when he institutes the, the Lord's Supper, he told them, this is how you eat it. But then he reminds them, this isn't the last meal. We call it the Last Supper. It's Jesus' Last Supper. But he indicates that it's more to come. He says, listen, I will not drink forth this fruit of the cup until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, implying you are not home. You're not home yet. Yes, you've been set free. You've been set free from the bondage of sin and all of the vestiges of sin. You have been, the condemnation of God has been removed. And so the chains are off, but you're still in the wilderness. You, still, you got sandals on, and sometimes because our sandals are golden, we forget we're not 
home. This meal is for those who understand that there's more to come. This meal is for those who are reminded that get your staff in your hand. In other words, you're going to have stuff to defend against. Eat it and have your, gird, your, your loins girded and fasten your belt and put your sandals on. You're always in motion because you're not home yet. There are things that we will look as the Lord feeds us from his table and we will have higher expectations for right now And some people can't deal with the discomfort of being in a human decaying body and wondering how can God love us. And here's what he's saying, but you're not home. Come to the table and let the Father feed you. He said, but I I just came from the doctor and here's the report, but you're not home. That'd be different if you were at home, but you're not home. I've coming to the table, Lord, I would come, but, but my family is dysfunctional. You're not home yet. He says, come on and eat, and, and you've, you've, gotten too, you've gotten too comfortable. See, that was part of the problem with the children of Israel when they were in Egypt. When Joseph was in a position of prominence and he brought his family to Egypt during the time of the famine, they got comfortable in Egypt. And thought they were home and said, well, I guess this is it. He said, no, no, the Lord promised you a specific place and Egypt ain't it. And so he allowed them to be taken into bondage so that he could set them free. Not only set them free from human sin, but set them free from human culture. Set them free from those things that, that they had, that it had entrapped them. And we see how Egypt had poisoned their mind because as soon as they get out in the distance for a way and they get a little, they get a little desperate, what do they do? They fall back to Egyptian ways. When they made the golden calf. That wasn't just by accident. They didn't, they didn't say, oh, well, let's, what, what can we make our God? No, they, they were acting like Egypt. One of the gods of Egypt, one of the many gods of Egypt, was a cow. And so they worshipped a cow because they were, were used to Egypt. Here's what God is reminding us every time we come to the table. He's reminding us that he is at work in this world. He's at work in this world condemning sinners and pardoning them. He reminds us that we are a family Regardless of what we act like or think, we are a family. It's a community thing. But He brings us to the table to remind us that no matter how big your piece of the property is, no matter how much you've accumulated, and it's good, we can serve the Lord with all of these things, but you are not home. We still have some hurdles to cross. We still have some stuff to get over. You are not home. You say, oh, but it's so much better than it used. It is better. Maybe your circumstances have reversed and, and because I, I think it's two extremes of why we need to be reminded that we're not home yet. Some people need to be reminded that, that they're not home is because they are frustrated with God because of the way things are. And they need to be reminded, but that's okay, you're not home. But then others need to be reminded that we're not home It's because we've gotten too content with the way things are. And he's telling us that this is nice, but it's not home. 
Remember Peter, he didn't want Jesus to leave. He said, well, you're the Lord, but, but Jesus says, therefore, I must go. I must go to Calvary. I must be lifted or taken up by the, the officers and the religious leaders offered up to them, and I'll be beaten and I'll be crucified. And Peter said, oh, no, Lord, it's been, it, it, life hasn't been good for me since you've been this good. I haven't experienced it this good until you came along. We ain't going to let that happen. Jesus said, no, no, Peter, you don't get it. You're concerned about the things of man. You're not home yet. If you think it's good now, you wait. You wait till I come back. You think it's good being a child of God now. You wait till I come back when, we, when you will meet me in the sky. You wait until I get back and get all of the scourge, all of the trash, all of the dirt out of here. You wait. You think this earth is good now? Wait till it's without sin. You're not home. Three things that God reinforces to us that he speaks through his word as he feeds us from the table. I'm in charge and I'm acting. So is my Passover. You are one body, no matter what you think. You are one. Either that or you're an alien. And thirdly, you're not home. It's a pilgrim's meal. And brothers and sisters, if you think this meal is good now, you wait till we go to the feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, when there is no more self-examination, when there is no more questioning, and more importantly, the one big difference when we get home and we have this meal we will have Jesus right there with us. Because he says, I won't drink it anew with you until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Everyone who eats here has a dinner drink with Jesus when we get home. Because he said, I'll drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I pray that we are content and what God has given us in Christ. So we don't need magic. We don't need to change the emblems from natural to supernatural. We don't need, there is no human that's going to wave his hand or offer a prayer that's going to change the substance. But here's what the substance is. We are freed in Christ. We are one body in Christ. And he's feeding us. As, as, as John Calvin says, he is giving us our strength as long as we are in these mortal lives. But when these bodies are given over to an immortal body, we have a better feast that yet awaits us. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of your grace in Christ. We know that we as creatures are easily distracted. Our joys are fleeting, our comforts.